Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and from Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters, overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. 2020 has been quite the momentous year, and I don't say that with affection. The world has been rocked and partially dismantled by the most deadly virus in a century. The United States has been curdled by a mean-spirited and divisive election. And here on Postmortem, we were caught in the midst of another controversy involving our former home network, which has since been sold and mended. But it kept us off the air for months, and during that time, we've seen the closure of our beloved cathedrals to cinema, the local movie theaters, and the world's biggest theater chains are hovering on the brink of bankruptcy. We miss that feeling of the communal film experience, but are learning to order our films on demand at home. Will it change the viewing habits of the nation and push theater viewing further out of reach? The coronavirus experience has already pushed up the window between theatrical and streaming movies to weeks rather than months, and in many cases, to day and date. Being with friends and sharing, whether for a movie or a cup of coffee, expands our world, which has been shrunk to the confines of a Zoom conference. It appears help is on the way. Multiple companies have created a vaccine that appear to be enormously effective. May it prove to be the savior of the planet. I miss my friends. I miss film production. I miss movies in theaters. I miss doing our interviews face to face. Like Anne Frank, my optimism has been tested by the last year, but I maintain it. I hope for the best from people, from the scientific community, from society, and from each other. The genre community has remained steadfast, and as much as I appreciate all that we've been able to share online, I can't wait to be safe in the same room with friends and family and a great big movie screen. Our guest this time out is truly a phenomenon, one of those rare performers who has deservedly won every major entertainment industry award, the Tony, the Grammy, the Emmy, and the Oscar. She's an amazing creator of characters and shares our love of the uncanny here with us on Postmortem. We'll be back with Whoopi Goldberg right after this. Before we start our conversation with Whoopi, I just wanted to let you know that my first short story collection, A Life in the Cinema, with an introduction by Stephen King and an afterword by Toby Hooper, is now available for the first time in paperback and Kindle format on Amazon. It's also available as an audible audiobook with stories read by Matt Frewer, Stephen Weber, the late great Miguel Ferrer, and myself. My latest book, These Evil Things We Do, is also available in paperback and Kindle format on Amazon.com, just in time for the holidays. And Whoopi, 
we finally meet. We almost met in 1993 when uh, I was in casting for the original version of The Stand. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, so so you had read the book and I had heard that you were really enthusiastic about it and we got really excited about the prospect of that happening, but you were also in the middle of movie after movie after movie. Yeah, yeah. And I thought they'd give me a break and let me go do something I, I was crazy about. And they were like, but, you know, we, can't we finish this? And I was like, yes, okay, fine. <laughs> But it's better because I think uh, I would have been too young. And Ruby Dee was uh, an exceptional choice. Oh, she so, was such an yeah. amazing lady. I think she yeah. was 65 when we shot. Yeah. And just such a queen of all media. So, yeah. so wonderful and respected. But the time is right now for you to take on the Mother Abigail role. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's better because I, I'm, you know, kind of the same age as Ruby was. So right, works, right. <laughs> exactly the same age. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, so it worked out. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and, and how you were drawn to stories and storytelling. And you were a little girl. Your, your father was a Baptist minister, um, but you were mostly raised by your mother, if I'm not wrong, in, in the Chelsea right. area. Right. So tell me how that discovery, were you lonely and created these characters to play with or um no i just this all began because i loved watching movies and i'd start acting out what i thought i was seeing and then my mother told me people did that for a living and I, said, <laughs> oh, I, I would like to do that and she said okay well just know it's not easy and you know you'll have to see how you do it's like, okay, but she always said, you know, is that still your first choice? And it was always, yeah. And so, you know, for me, it was watching anybody, you know, John Garfield was a favorite of mine because I mm. loved him. I just loved how he moved. I didn't, I guess when I was a kid, I didn't really associate that you couldn't play John Garfield, if you wanted to, but, you know, I just assumed that everybody could play everything. And right. so that's kind of how I looked at it. But I, I, you know, I was, I had a, have a, had an older brother and we just like things like the twilight zone and anything that was like really interesting, like the crawling eye, ah. or any of the, you know, any of the, um, Godzilla movies, you know, or what was the one that Raymond Burr did? Oh, uh, that was Godzilla, yeah. Was that Godzilla? Yeah, 1954. No, no, it was Giant Behemoth. Oh, like, oh, Giant, Giant Behemoth, Behemoth, yeah. Yeah, yeah they it, cut Raymond Burr into the original Godzilla for right, the American. Right, It just, you know, all of these kind of great movies that I loved growing up that my brother and I, you know, just were crazy about, you know, what Robert Wise, you know, uh, yeah. talking about the original haunting, you oh, know, yeah. and just how scary uh, it was. And they had nowhere near the kinds of effects <laughs> that people have now. And it, to me, is still one of the scariest movies ever. So I agree. Yeah. I started to uh, absorb Stephen King. You know, that just was 
he blew my mind, you know, and it was book after book after book after book. And it took me a very long time to read them because I'm dyslexic. But, wow. you know, I'd get through them and it's just like, oh my God, <laughs> I love it. Wow. And The yeah. Stand is a real mother to get through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By, by the time The Stand came out, I had a, a, a better understanding of how to get through long books with tiny little writing. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I love, I love anything that you have to question, is this possible? I don't right. really like slasher films because we know those are possible. Right. Um, I like, why is that door breathing? Or does anyone else see that? Or is it just me? You know, and that took me into outer space as well. You yeah, know, you were a big Star, Star Trek, Trek. Fan, and and then you yeah. became a part of it. Yeah, which was heaven for me as well. But all of these things, you know, there, I've been trying to get into a horror movie yeah. uh, for about thirty years. Well, because, I think we could probably work that out. Well, good because you know, <laughs> no one, you know, people think, and I am, I'm a fairly decent person, but if I'm in a horror movie, no one's going to suspect my character. They're just not because they're going to say, <laughs> no, who's going to do that to Whoopi? Nobody's going to put her and make her the monster. I want to be the thing that is scaring everybody. Oh, I want it to be the essence of whatever the outer thing is. I want to be very, very old and having traipse the earth forever and you know every now and then somebody does something and it wakes me up and i you know turn up in whatever guise i need to be okay but, well the word is out there now yeah you know so i keep asking and then you know uh i got so lucky because i saw they were redoing the stand and so i i, I think i wrote to josh boone or and I said, listen, I would like, here's a picture that they drew and that I might have looked like, but this is from a thousand years ago. And I would really like to play this. And, right. and, and eventually and, I got him and he said, oh, no, we were we were coming to you. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it was very well known that it was a role that appealed to you, that you loved yeah. the book. And yeah. now finally doing that. Who is Mother Abigail to you? How, how would you explain her? Well, she is, you know, she's a couple of things. She has been around, it says in the book, a hundred and some odd years, but I, I think her essence has been around just, I think Randall Flagg and Mother Abigail look different every time they come into, you know, they have to meet up and mm -hmm. sort of, fight this battle again. So right now, the last hundred years, this is what she's looked like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think she really gets a little bit ahead of herself for the first time because she forgets that with all of this, all these abilities that she has to walk in somebody else's dream and tell them where to come and it, that this is a gift to her. This isn't, she didn't give this to herself. She doesn't have these powers without the, the larger hand. And right. when she begins to tell everybody what to do, she doesn't notice that, you know, the communication has gotten different. And because she doesn't notice it, she makes several missteps, I think. 
and has to go and have her reckoning in the, you know, in the company of the Lord. Right. And she carries the weight of the world on her shoulders throughout. And here she's 106 years old yeah. in this life. Yeah. And that's quite a burden for someone whose heart is pure. Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm not, I think she has to fight to keep her heart pure. Mm -hmm. And the minute she gives up that will is when she gets into trouble. Well, she's tested constantly. But she's usually pretty good. <laughs> she's usually pretty good. She's a hundred yeah, years. Did all right. And then suddenly, you know, I, I'm trying I'm talking around it so I don't give it all away. But she right. she is human, as it turns out. She has those human qualities. Uh and she has to she has to come to terms with the fact that she took a misstep. Right. A misstep that was rather insulting to the head, you know, the head. <laughs> the big yeah, the big cheese. So uh, in your upbringing, first in a Baptist household and then in well, a Catholic. Actually, I, my dad was a Baptist minister. He didn't live with me. So that's all. Yeah, that, that's, a separate, that's a separate life. But you were raised in Catholicism, I believe. Uh, I, went to, I went to Catholic school. Right. And, and your mother actually, was a teacher? My mother became a, a Head Start teacher. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. She was, was a great, and she was a great teacher. So you had a biblical or a religious background in your childhood. Did you draw upon any of that? What, because uh, The Stand is such a biblical story in its right. roots and, and all of the whole world of revelation and the like that comes to life here. Did you draw upon any of that from your childhood experience? No, I used all of that up with Sister Act. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All of the nuns. Um, the, uh, the thing that I, that I am is more of a humanist because, you know, God's pretty clear, I think, about what is expected. And what is expected is for us to live our best life, you know, and human beings always muck it up because they they don't see their best life in front of them they're always looking we are always as a as a race always looking to find where it is it's always it's right here um and so for me with abigail it was just you know in many ways you, <laughs> this is very heavy in my brain um but she became for me a lot like Judas, because mm. she, you know, Judas had a job to do and there wasn't any way he could get out of it. Right. And she says at some point, listen, what did I do? What, why are we fighting? You know, why are we fighting? And the, the non-message is, think about it. And then she begins to recognize how she, <laughs> how she didn't, do what she was supposed to do the way she was supposed to do it. But she, she did something, you know, she did stuff right, but not, not the right way. So she had, she had to uh, really sort of give it up, you know, give it up to the greater good. So she, to me, is one of those people, and much like Flag, you know, Flag doesn't, he, he acts like he has 
freedom of choice, but he doesn't either. Right. Predestined. Yeah. It's just, it, we have to do it. And whether we do it this way or we do it this way, it's still getting done. You know well, it mean? comes down to an ultimate, uh, an ultimate confrontation of true good and true evil. Yeah. And it's a, uh, a heavy scale to weigh. Um, I'm fascinated, as we're recording this, we, the stand has not aired yet. We haven't seen it yet. And having lived with my version of the stand, doing, spending a year making that, mm -hmm. and seeing an entirely new take from the same book, but knowing that there are a lot of changes, I'm fascinated by it. And so I'm wondering how much of it felt new to you, because you had read it, you'd seen it, all of that. Well, it became new. The year that you all shot the stand was what? 93. What was it, 2000? No. 93. Okay, 93. So 100 years prior to that would have been what? It would have been 1893. <laughs> okay. So for me, 100 years prior to us doing this, in you know what was it 20, 2020 yeah 2020 is a different time it's a whole different kettle of fish for her so right. she has she's grown up in a different era her freedoms are different her beliefs her world beliefs are different than i think mother abigail's were from her childhood so that's kind of where i started you know, what, what would I have seen? Uh, and so talking about building my face, you know, uh, and talking about architecture, the architecture of black women and their necks now, you know, because yeah. we've seen lots of renditions of old black women, but now we know what, you know, a hundred year old black woman might actually look like because we've seen a couple. So now, right. so now she has a, a little bit of a different, structure she's she's also bigger i think than abigail is physically when we read her she's a little tiny little old black lady well you know <laughs> i couldn't quite pull it off so i pulled her off as best i could but i i i think her world and what she knows is vastly different you know right Right, it's a totally different world now from what it was in 1994 when this Yeah. Happened. But, uh, well, you have stepped into the, the fear world. You've worked with my, my late friend Toby Hooper on Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, I loved him. We had such a good time. <laughs> a good time. He's like, you really have? I was like, yeah, bring him on. <laughs> yeah, Toby. Tales from the Crypt was, you know, one of my favorite shows also. I, you know, I love all of those shows. Yeah. Do you remember the first movie that, that captivated you that was kind of either a monster movie or something scary or something outside of the mainstream? Yeah, it was The Haunting. Was oh, Robert that was the one that did it for you. Because still, it was, you know, it, the thing that kind of got you and really why it became scary and remains scary is that door. When... Uh, trying to remember Claire Bloom and Julie Harris are in bed. They're saying, you hear that coming? Cause it's like, and you hear and they're sitting there and you see them going closer and closer and closer. And they're looking at the door and the 
sound stops in front of the door and then the door does this. Mm-hmm. And it was to me. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> because I couldn't figure out, how did you do that? <laughs> how did you make that door? Do- now, you know, I've seen all kinds of movies, I thought, as a kid, but I'd never seen anything like that, and it scared me. Right. And when she says, oh, just hold my hand, because she's having a conversation. Julie Harris is talking, and she thinks that Claire Bloom has, you know, gotten into bed with her, and she puts her hand out of her, and then she discovers that it wasn't Claire Bloom holding her hand, baby. Whose hand am I holding? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just... I mean, you you look at everybody that was, I think it's Richard Johnson yeah. and uh, Russ Tamblin. Yeah. And I mean, just that crew of people and then her driving away from that, that, that movie scares me and continues to give me a, a deep, you know, because I know it's coming. That and The Exorcist, those are the only two films that really did me in. And The Exorcist finished me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're a tough cookie if those are the only two that have gotten uh, you. The only two, because for me, those were things before the second cut, before the director's cut of The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. The, the beauty of that film was really leading up to, you know, her talking to Mr. Howdy and then all of the things that led up that you didn't see, then you see her at the hospital, but then they bring her back. You don't spend a lot of time and she doesn't, you don't see anything crazy uh, until she comes down to talk to her mom mm-hmm. and she wets the floor. Right. Then you know something really bad's going on here. When you saw the director's cut, you know, you had her going up the stairs backwards, you know, when her head yeah. was twisting, it was, and it just took away from the really clear path of where it took you initially. When you lay the groundwork of something really real and you introduce these characters and and their problems and things like that, before you get into the supernatural stuff, it's so much more potent. I agree with you. Yeah. Because then you're, you're wondering, is this, is this happening in somebody's head or is this really happening? And you know, (laughs) when the, Whole breath started coming out of her mouth. You know, I can only watch it if there are 50 people in the room and they're all spending the night. I can't watch it. <laughs> I can't do it myself. Yeah, I don't know why I think that will save me. If the devil comes for you, you know, it's kind of a done deal. Yeah. But just, it's so, it's so impactful. And so those are those movies, those two movies are the ones that just made me understand what it is to be scared. Yeah, yeah. Well, one one movie that you did that's genuinely scary is Ghost. You were able to be yeah. in a classic yeah. ghost story. Yeah. And, you know, you are kind of the centerpiece that unlocks the ghost. <laughs> yeah. And I'm very careful about stuff like that because, you know, you don't want to invite a lot of stuff in. <laughs> exactly. You just, yeah, you want to keep yourself kind of clear. But, yeah, Ghost is is... Wonderful, and I think I'm not as frightened because I was there. Right. You know, 
And so, there's a sense of humor to it that you, your character yeah. brought into it that yeah. leavens, makes it yeah. easier to get into that dark scene. Yeah, yeah. Because it was, it's pretty, it's pretty dark film. Yeah. I, uh, I did a, uh, an episode of Amazing Stories with Patrick Swayze right before Ghosts, and that right. was a, a great experience. Yeah, you know? I loved, I had a good time with him. It, we, we just, it was magic, you know, we didn't know it was magic. We just kept going, what are we shooting? What are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. just and a director who was known for comedy doing yeah. a, a scary yeah. movie that had humor. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that's the best way to give scary things. Yeah, it's a nice way. Even Alfred Hitchcock used to knock you off your guard by making you laugh first yes. and then twisting it around and pulling the yeah. rug out from under you. <laughs> so I'd love to know about your early theater days. I know you were doing theater in Berkeley before you were doing your one-woman show. Uh, My first familiarity with you was when Whoopi Goldberg on Broadway was on HBO. Right. And that just blew me away. Here are all these completely diverse characters brought to life. And so you conceived and wrote it as well as played it, right? Yeah. I was trying to get a job. So I wanted to <laughs> what, what I could do. Um, and because I wrote the material, no one could say, well, that's not how that passage goes. You know? <laughs> and they wouldn't know if I changed it or did something to it. Um, and, you know, that that's that's what goes on in my head on a daily basis is uh, many people talking, you know, but I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been uh, sort of given a pass. So no one has tried to put me away. But, <laughs> yeah. You can have multiple personalities in the entertainment business. That's right. Yes, you can. <laughs> You're encouraged. But tell yeah. me about the germination of that and how uh, Mike Nichols came on board and discovered you and really brought you to Broadway. Well, I, I had been doing uh, this show, which was then called The Spook Show, mm. uh, and doing all these different characters with my partner. And he had his show and I had mine. And I would just do these people. And, and part of it came from trips that we had taken because it was the first time I'd been to Europe. And it kind of blew me away because we ended up in Amsterdam at the Anne Frank house. Oh, and wow. I wanted to explain to people my experience having gone there and, and seen that room where she had been and what it must have taken for her to, to do what she did. And I thought, who is the last person in the world to tell you this story? And I thought, oh, I know. And I had, I had this guy, Fontaine, in my head for the longest time. And I thought, there's a place for you, but I don't know where it is. And that it turned out that that was the place for him to talk about the experience of going, because I hate to fly, of getting on an airplane and going to Europe and the experience of dealing with the stewardesses and all those folks and the experience of being in, a, in an airplane and then landing and then finding yourself in a place that someone wouldn't assume that you'd go to because of course you're a junkie so why would you ever have this kind of experience and as it turns out Fontaine has a PhD uh, in philosophy and his his attitude is well I wasn't born a junkie you know I just this is where I ended up this is where I am so the craziness of that 
and then I'll get back to the story, is I got a call about a year or two ago from a college. And they said, we're looking for Whoopi Goldberg because we hear she graduated from this college. It was like, no, <laughs> I no. And they said, well, you know, you've said it over and over and you've done it. And I'm thinking, what are they talking about? And then I said, are you, are you talking about my character? Because I, I have a character who says he graduated with a PhD. Some right-leaning person decided they were going to bust me because I hadn't gone to college or graduated and was saying I had a PhD. I said, um, I got to tell you, <laughs> this is kind of crazy, but if you listen to this piece that I did, this might clear it up. And I never heard from him again. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah moron. Um, oh, but so there was, he was there. And then I, I lived in Berkeley for a long time. And, you know, they have the, the Center for Independent Living, mm-hmm. which uh, was the group that first insisted that they make dents in the, on the sidewalk for wheelchairs. They fought for that. And so I had a friend who was paraplegic who said to me one day, I don't know if I like you anymore. And I was like, what's the matter? He said, how come you never do us? I said, us? What are you talking about? He said, how come you never do me or Henry as a character? I was like, because I I have no, I don't know. He said, wow. well, you should, you should sit, you should think about it because wow. maybe, maybe that would help people understand us a little bit better too. That's like, oh, a powerful God. door that opened up to you. It is a huge door. And I was like, oh, frog legs. Okay. Let me figure <laughs> that out. You know, and I created the, this young woman who, who is kind of wonderful. She is a, a differently abled person who has a wonderful life. And she talks about getting married to this man who came and courted her and she thought he was coming to make fun. And he took her dancing. And she was like, Are you, I don't do that. And he's like, why not? And she's like, yeah, why don't I? Okay, let's go. And so he challenged her in many ways. And then she explains to him that sometimes when she sleeps, uh, she feels like she's becoming more of a normal person and I change physically on stage. And, and then she, she talks about coming and getting married and all that stuff. And so uh, I did that and my friend said, thank you. Just, <laughs> I said, it's okay. He's like, yeah, <laughs> well, that was good. And so uh, most of it came out of, things that I've thought about or was thinking about at the time, like a young lady gives herself a, a, an abortion because she's been tossed out of the church and tossed out of her mother's house and she doesn't have anybody to share this with or talk to about it. And so she becomes a runaway and she, she does this to herself. And then you discover she's 14. So it's a whole, I just wanted people to think about what was happening in the world 
Yeah, there's so much humor and emotion. It's really deeply emotional. Each of them comes to, it starts out with a sense of levity and it comes to a place of true um, empathy and understanding. And was that little girl you who had the long, luxurious blonde hair wig? No, it was my kid. Oh, really? My daughter, which made me crazy because I raised her and I said, you know, your hair is fine. Let, don't let anybody talk about your hair. Don't tell, let anybody tell you you're not perfect and wonderful and all of the. And then one day she came in with a towel on her head. I was like, what are you doing? And she was like, well, I, I like it. This is my hair. And then I talked to some friends of mine. They said, oh, our kid does this all the time. Oh, said, wow. But she has the hair. She's, she has the hair everybody wants. Yeah. And they said, but it's not the hair that she wants. Hmm. She wanted curly hair. My daughter wanted straight hair. And I came to discover that everybody wanted different hair. Mm-hmm. They thought there was better hair on the other side. So I thought, well, I better, I better talk about this because it's kind of interesting that it doesn't really matter how much you tell your child or how much you raise them to believe in her. They will get there when they get there. Right. Know? And you can't be, you can't be mad at it. You just have to recognize it. So that's what that was about. And the fact that in the, in, you know, in those days, in 80, you know, two, 81, mm-hmm. there weren't very many black folks on the cover of very many magazines. So she wanted to, my little girl wanted to be the Brecht girl. Nobody knows who the Brecht girl is, but you know, when I was a kid, when we were kids, the Brecht girl was everything. That's the hair you wanted. And, you know, and so that's luxurious blonde hair. Yeah. yeah. So that's who I, I took that visual from in describing what she looked like. So it was really fun. So this was on a small stage as the spook show. And did Mike Nichols come to one of those performances? He came to a show. I, I got an invitation to come to New York and perform a dance theater workshop. And they were doing a series of monologues. And so they had all these people and they, they invited me. And it was great because it's right, right in the neighborhood I grew up in. So wow. I could stay with my mom. Nice. And, uh, so I started doing it. And the first couple of days, you know, nobody came. Oh. <laughs> it was like four people there maybe. And I said to them, I'm really sorry, uh, but you know, they don't know me here. So they know me in Berkeley, but they don't know me here. He said, well, you know, they're gonna get to know you because you know, you'll, you'll do this several more times and see where it takes you. Well, I, it only took a couple of days because a gentleman called Mel Gussow mm-hmm. came and wrote about the show. And they all knew that he was there I didn't know who he was and I didn't know he was there, uh, but he, he, he wrote for the New York Times. And so he wrote, <laughs> he wrote this, if he had been my husband, it couldn't have been a better, <laughs> oh, know, it couldn't nice. have been a better review. And then suddenly all kinds of people came and that's when Mike came. But before that, you know, Bette Midler was sitting in the theater with about five people. And, wow. and uh, a couple of other actors who I knew, who I didn't personally know, know, but I knew them as actors. You know, it was just very exciting to see them. 
And then came Mike and Mike came backstage and said, um, I was on the last boat out of Germany. And so the Anne Frank part just tore him up. Wow. Just tore him up. Yeah. So he said, would you do this on Broadway? And I honestly thought he was kidding. <laughs> I said, sure. Yeah, that's a pretty big would you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then about eight months later, when I was back in Berkeley, the phone rang and it was, it was Mike. And he said, uh, you remember I asked you if you would come back and do it? I said, like, yeah. He said, so when are you free? I was like, I thought you were kidding, man. Free to come <laughs> and do it. <laughs> so the magic of... Uh, I don't know what, something, something just kind of bopped me on the nose. Cause wow. the, you know, this doesn't happen to lots of people cause there are thousands and thousands of talented people. Yeah. And I don't know how it stopped here. And so you know, here, take you, you know. Luck, talent and timing. All of those yeah. make for an explosive combination. Yeah. So it changed your life. Suddenly you're on Broadway and you're the toast of Broadway after having played these little theaters and doing little shows in Berkeley. Tell me how that felt. It felt great for a while. And then uh, something that is, I think that happens to a lot of people. You know, we always decided that whoever made it was going to pull everybody else with them right so i thought that was the plan <laughs> i mm -hmm. thought that was the plan so you know and i sort of went back and said my god let me tell you what i've seen what i've where i've been what's happening and, and everybody was like oh okay and i was like what is the matter we're gonna we're gonna get to go to these parties we're gonna get to go and do all this stuff and suddenly people were like well you know you you've changed and it's like like, wait, I, you, I, you haven't waited for me to change yet. I haven't turned into a bonehead yet, you oh, know? Wow. So it, it, uh, it was a bit tough. And in talking about it in later years with everybody, it was just like people said, we just, we didn't know what to do because here you were and we assumed you were going to change. So we changed before you did. And I was like, well, <laughs> you killed me off. But, oh wow! You know, you killed me off. So uh, it took a little while, but I, I realized that it it wasn't really a problem that I had. It was a problem that other people had. Yeah, you were living in a different world from what they were living very suddenly. Yeah, and but I was waiting to bring them in to that world. You know. Well, in 1985, you moved into a different. A world of performance. So you started working with Steven Spielberg, right. who saw the show on Broadway, uh, and well, you were heard about, you, it. heard about it. And oh, I, heard about it. Okay, but yeah, because uh, he hadn't been able to come to New York. But what predates that is I had my daughter and I were driving in Berkeley one day and we were listening to NPR and. Uh, we heard a reading and it was like, oh my God, do you, who, what is this? And so we pulled over and we just listened and it was Alice reading 
Color Purple. Wow, Alice Walker, yeah. Yeah. And I said, so if you if we just get one pair of shoes, we can buy the book as well. And she's like, let's get no new shoes and, and buy the book. I was like, no, no, you're getting new shoes. You have to have mm-hmm. new shoes. So we got the book and and we went through it. My kid and I went through it. And it was an amazing. So I wrote a note to the publisher, <laughs> to Alice Walker. I said, listen, if you ever make a movie of this, I would love to play, you know, Dust on the Ground. And so I gave her my address. I said, I'm a performer in Berkeley. I'm going to New York to do this thing. But, you know, if you get this, if you end up getting this, just know that I just think it's terrific. So I get to New York, because as I said, I, I tell you, my mom lived where, a couple of blocks from where I was performing. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived, she said, oh, you got mail. I said, mail? She said, yeah. And she hands me a purple envelope. And inside, it says, listen, I know who you are, because I've spent time in Berkeley and in Oakland. I've been to your shows. So I've already put your information out there to the people who think they're going to make the movie. Wow. So keep your fingers crossed. I was okay. So when I get this call about Steven, uh, I, he doesn't mention that he's involved with it, but he does say that, you know, says to my agent, if when she's heading back to Berkeley, maybe she could stop in Los Angeles and, you know, cause I can't get to the show. I'd love to see it. You know, it's Steven Spielberg. And I'm thinking, I'm happy. Yeah. I want to be, you know, uh, Indy's secretary. <laughs> I want to, I want to be in the ocean with Jaws. Sure, I want to be there. And I thought, okay, so I get this invitation. I say, yeah, and I go and I meet him, and I'm just kind of looking at him, and I say, I just, I'm sorry that I'm staring. I'm just knocked out. Are you sure you want to see the show? Because, you know. He says, no, no, I'm sure. I think I'm going to be doing The Color Purple. I said, oh. And so he said, I'd, I'd like to see your show. I was like, okay. So I do, I do my show. And I look, because he has, I'm giving like the a, a shortened version of it. Right. No, I love it. Place in, uh, in his studio, which was a little tiny theater that he had just opened and hadn't had anybody in there. Mm-hmm. So he said, I, and I have some, you know, folks are going to come and see, so you're not playing just to me. I was totally cool. And I say, okay, so I'll, I'll see you later. So I go back to my room and uh, my agent says, now look, this is very exciting for you, but what you can't do is you can't do the Blee T piece. Now I wrote a piece that I used to do with my show. I didn't do it with the spook show, but I did it with other shows called Blee T, B L E T E E. And it really was about what happens if he landed in Oakland and not in a very nice little neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, Oh, they say, whatever you do, do not do bleed tape because you don't want to be insulting to, I said, I, I, no, I don't, I don't. I said, so anything but that. I say, okay. 
I do my show. I, I get there, I get myself together and I hear people in the audience. And so just, you know, just for no reason, I go and I look like this and I'm looking and I see Michael Jackson, Quincy <laughs> Jones, Ashford and Simpson, just all of these people. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> why am I, what am I doing? So I go out and I do the show and they're laughing. I have a good time. And so I get to the last character and I think, and they scream more. I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I should do more. And they're like, no, no, do more. And, and Stephen Fonda says, what, what's the matter? I said, well, they asked me not to do this piece that I wrote about E.T. And he says, oh. I said, yeah, so that was just what I got him. He said, no, no, I want to see it. I was like, ah, I don't know if you, let me explain. He says, just, just do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Lee lands in the projects. Um, he can't phone home because the phones don't work because nobody ever repairs everything, anything. Um, and he gets involved with some shady folks you know he has a jerry curl and he starts dressing like the pimp he becomes and he carries a gun now and he's got the jerry curl and when his people come back to get him he shoots them up because he doesn't recognize them <laughs> and the moral of the story is that you don't want people to ever lose totally lose their identity when they come from another place to there <laughs> They're applauding and they're looking at me like, what, what planet are you from? <laughs> and I was just like, listen, it just, I had so many friends, parents who had come from other countries who were desperately trying to learn English because at the time everyone was saying, you know, if you can't learn English, you should get out of the country. And, right. you know, it's like, don't do that. All of you had parents who came who didn't start out being able to speak the language or your grandparents. And so I just wanted to put that back out there. So the next day I go to see Steve and he says, so I, I want you to play Seely in color purple. And I said, well, can I, you got something smaller? <laughs> That's a big step. Well, yeah. I, and he said, what? I said, well, I, I, I've never been in a movie. I've never really acted in a movie. So I don't know that, this is a good idea because I don't know how to do this. And he says, are, are you sure? I said, well, I, I said to him, what if I really suck? I mean, and then your name's all over and it's going to be really bad for you. He said, you know what? I'll take the chance. I'll mm. take the chance. And so, you know, I got to hang out and learn and watch a master at work, yeah. which was Fantastic, and I, I suspect it's why uh, my work has always sort of been just mine, whether people liked it or not. Because he always said to me, you know, you just, you have to bring what you have and, and put it in the hands of the character. So that if you find that you're not at your full capacity on that day, you have to find a way to work that in so you can do what you need to do. You know, or he would say, remember that shot in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird where uh, 
Boo Radley is slowly revealed. She said, you remember how the door comes open because Scout opens it and then she sees him. So it's like a, a boom, boom, boom. I said, yeah, he said, that's the feel I want. I said, okay, I understand that. So that's how he, he got what he got from me. He, I had the same experience with him in the same year, 1985. He gave me my first screenwriting job on Amazing Stories and gave me the rope to hang myself repeatedly. <laughs> and it was just such a great experience. He was so encouraging. And, you know, it led to me writing Batteries Not Included and Hocus Pocus and then before the Stephen King era. And it was just such an amazing gift that you want to share with other people. Yes. You know? Yes. And, and I wonder if you had the same experience when you went on to work with other people, having been given that freedom. Did people kind of look at you crazy when you said, so I want to do it this way because you can do this and this and this. Did they, because I would say, well, you know, I know you can do this or this, or I can go this way or this way. People will go, wait, just go the way I'm telling you to go. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the whole point is to bring your personality into it and make it yours and make it yeah. unique and special, you know? Well, and, I have to ask you a question now because yeah. you've opened the door. <laughs> so are you thinking of doing the remake of Hocus Pocus? Are you doing um, They are doing a sequel. I'm not involved other than it being based on the script that I wrote to, with, right. the, with other people. But um, uh, so uh, there are other things going on with Hocus Pocus that I can't talk about, but, um, <laughs> but uh, pretty exciting stuff. But the sequel, uh, I don't think it's gone into production yet. I'm not involved in it, right. but uh, right. I certainly would love to be. I was only on the set the first day of the first one. And that was pretty exciting. And Kenny Ortega yeah. did a, an amazing job on that. So. Wow. It's fabulous. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so tell me about the difference between the stage acting and, you know, it's much more intimate when you've got a camera in your face making movies. And did it throw you off? Did it uh, affect how you approached your work? No, he said what <laughs> Stephen said was in the, in there, in the lens, there are 14 million people responding to you. Wow. And because you're dedicated to the work you're doing, you can't see them, but you can feel them. It's like, okay. And I said, well, you know, I, I kind of need that feel. He said, oh, you, you'll feel it. You'll feel all the people that are working on the set. They're all, they're all there. They are, they're the human, the human beings you can see, but the people that you're concerned, you should be concerned about, are in there. And that was all he needed to say. Wow, so it didn't, it didn't feel like a camera was invasive or too close or that the level you were at was more intimate because it was closer to a camera and the characters and not playing to the proscenium. Yeah, no, it just seemed, it made sense. Yeah. It made sense, you know, and, uh, he, he was very, um, he, I could ask him a million questions because I, I did not, I thought that you shot the movie in a day. <laughs> yeah, like a play on film. Like a play. And he said, no. <laughs> he said, no, no, no. We, and it's going to take this long. And I said, how, why do we 
go, how come you do so many? He said, because it can always be better. Hmm. And I was like, okay, okay. He said, so you get an opportunity to make it better from the last one you did. Hmm. Like, and what if I think the last one I did was okay? He said, well, <laughs> you'll humor me. <laughs> yeah, he's a very encouraging guy. And, yeah, and- I, I, I'm so blessed that I to have started with him and Mike. I mean, I, I got walked in like a little tiny baby holding, you know, Mike Nichols hand and holding Steven Spielberg's hand. Yeah. So, the two leading people within their media, you know, yeah. it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, I'd like to also ask you a little about Stephen King. Um, I don't think he visited the set. Did he on the stand? I don't think he did while I was there. Yeah. Well, he wrote our screenplay and he was there for about half of the shoot. And he loves to just be on a set and watch the toy trains play, you know. <laughs> but what what was the first Stephen King book you read? Was it The Stand or was it Carrie or The oh, Shining? Oh, it's Carrie. Oh, so you read the first book as oh, yeah. it Oh, yeah. No, I, I've gone with him on this journey. So you read that before the Brian De Palma movie? Yeah, I didn't see the movie. I mean, I eventually saw the movie, but I saw the, I I read the book first. Right. And so tell me, King has such a unique and honest voice. Tell me how, how it struck you that first time out. Well, I, I had no idea that there were people like Carrie's mother in the world. (laughs) So, you know. I kind of feel like I would have been carried too if that had been my experience, yeah. you know, and how she was treated in school and just how she was treated. And when they talked to, you know, when her mother sort of describes the stones falling mm-hmm. on the house, I, I just, I just, I didn't feel like I was Carrie, but I felt like I understood Carrie. I yeah. got it. Yeah. Well, and what's amazing is that a male writer can write so well from inside a teenage girl's mind and portray it so clearly. Perhaps the shocker is the same thing goes on in a teenage boy's mind as well. Yeah. Not in the same exact way, but that that being unused to being around people if you're a shy kid or or having something happen to you that you don't understand, that everybody else gets, but you don't. You know, that is, I think that's the human, it's the human experience. Yeah. Did you feel like an outsider growing up? So many people in the arts did. And it's one of the reasons that motivated them to create. Well, I think I did. I think I must have, because I was always, making trips to other planets, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, or pretending to be somebody coming downstairs. So I think I just was, it was just my mom and my brother and I really. So mm-hmm. I think we were just, it was just us. So, yeah. you know, we were all, the three of us were very strange people. My <laughs> mom was strange and as was my brother. Good strange. Good strange. <laughs> All the best people are strange. I think so. <laughs> Me too. So 
your career has been so amazing with theater and and films and television and now you're the ringleader on the view for many years and it is the show that most women get their news from more than any other source so tell me about how that experience works because now you're part of a group you you kind of are leading the charge and it's very political and it's very much of the moment and important sociologically and politically and and in all those ways tell me about that experience well it's you know it's a it's a double-edged sword i think because on any given day half the population loves you and half the population hates you and you suddenly discover that oh okay well i can't go do these commercials because you know one of those people who hate me during any given time uh, can call and say, you know what, I'm not gonna buy your product because of who you have, you know, as your spokesperson. And so you start affecting other people in ways that you didn't realize you were going to, or that did you plan on doing, you know? So it's a double-edged sword, you know, but I'm, I'm glad for it, you know, we shoot it every day, you know, we're, we're in COVID mode. So that means that, you know, I shoot from here. Yeah. And, uh, I'm loving it. <laughs> it. It's so great to see because it's, uh, it's something you don't normally get from network TV or commercial TV is it is points of view that are really important about what's going on right this minute. And the fact that you're on immediately before it airs, you know, it's, it's remarkable. We're on live. We're live. Yeah, yeah. So it's great. Do you feel a sense of responsibility in this regard? Because you are helping shape people's opinion. Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. And I and I could, you know, and I don't think I should. I think I have to uh, do what they pay me to do, which is to give my opinion on whatever it is we're talking about. And that. that's the more important thing is if someone says, what do you think of this? This is what I think of it. And you don't have to think that way, but that's how I think. And here's why I think this. And so there are days where you, you just want to, you know, say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to talk for a couple of days. Cause this is, I can't make sense of any of this. And so now I just say, you know, I don't know what this is. I don't know what's going on. You know, this, 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 nothing makes sense. And part of the reason it doesn't make sense is because when I was a kid, there were certain things that, you know, you didn't do. Certain things that you just, in order to really benefit everybody, you know, you try to tell the truth, you try to walk the the walk. And when people didn't, you know, you kind of shunned them. And now it's very different, you know, so trying to figure out how to not discourage people so you can't you yourself can't get discouraged but then you know you turn the tv off it's like i just want to you know drop kick this guy yes (laughs) i know that feeling yeah Yeah. yeah. but a lot of people you know believe heavily in him and I, i i don't it's hard sometimes to understand so i have to try to listen to what people are trying to explain to me. It doesn't work as well as I would like it to work. (laughs) 
Well, these important voices, they're, they're really important for the world to hear. And it's so great that you have this platform and that you're able to articulate feelings that so many of us have on this show. And Whoopi, you're a national treasure and all the things that you've given to us and continue to give to us are remarkable. And I, I thank you so much for sharing some of your time with me. My pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.